Hi, I'm Christina Dunlap, and I'm on the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How about yourself? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You're doing all right. All Can't right, complain. Good. Can't complain, except for that I'm on video and I don't, I, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, our podcast is developing new subscribers every day. So even if even if you're not wild about the video, uh, it seems to be that people who are watching us seem to like it. Welcome to my messy office. Hopefully one day I will uh, be able to festoon the background with all of the uh, amateur clown paintings that I collected, <laughs> mostly over the pandemic. And it's a... Uh, it's not a small number of amateur clown paintings, and they're not good. And I think even slightly out of focus, it would just create like a malaise in the viewer that would make them immediately want to only listen to the podcast at that point. It, it will be haunting. But when you say amateur clown, you're talking about people who are not professional clowns or amateur painters of clowns. Amateur painters of clowns. Uh, I understand. So I, I think all the clowns are hypothetical clowns. I don't think any of them are actual clowns. Mm. Um, and, uh, it's a long story. I, I found a market of clown paintings that were generally under 20 bucks that were original paintings. And I have, uh, let's just say, uh, call the authorities number of them. There used to be a, uh, divey bar in San Francisco that was nothing but like clown paintings on velvet was uh was definitely the place you wanted to go if you were sad i, I approve i approve so uh I, let's let's do an awkward segue from clown paintings to who's the amazing artist that we are highlighting today the amazing artist on the show today actually her latest work was just nominated for best picture at the academy awards so no no small feat not at all uh, Christina Dunlap. Christina Dunlap had a great conversation with her. Her uh, film, of course, is American Fiction, which I loved. And uh, we're going to get into the conversation in just a few minutes. But first up, what's going on in the world with our Close Focus? And now, Close Focus. Well, I, I think that we would be remiss to not talk about the Academy Award nominations. Um, we should talk about the Academy Awards, but also there was a, a poll that just came out. Uh, Variety, actually, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes for those who subscribe to Variety. You can see this uh, poll all about how less than 10% of Amazon Prime subscribers are willing to pay $2.99 a month to not have commercials. Hmm. So I don't know what that says exactly about the platform, what it says about how people value it, but it seems to be there's uh, people all over the map on whether or not they're willing to pay more to not have commercials. Maybe it's just people who watch Amazon Prime don't mind commercials. I don't know. Just well, the, you know. The, more, the more things change, the more they stay the same, man. I mean, it's like TV made this giant leap to streaming, and then it's kind of digressing back to regular old television. And so here we are kind of with TV as it was 20 years ago, and you don't even have the benefit of a DVR that would allow you to record the shows and skip the commercials. But I've been recently watching The Offer, which is that uh, that TV series about the making of The Godfather. It's really mm. good. Shot by our uh, friend of the show, Sal. Totino, incidentally, and uh, commercials don't bug me. I don't know if you watch anything on Pluto TV or you watch anything on Tubi or Freebie or any of those streaming services, you just kind of get used to commercials on your stuff. Uh, would I prefer no commercials? Sure, but I think that probably what's happening here is there's a malaise of we're all paying for too many streaming services. Yeah, I think there's definitely some of that. I know that I'm going to be canceling some services this month. So Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Getting to the point. <laughs> so, anyway, so, so Ben, let's let's talk about the Oscars. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's talk yeah. about so, the, the noms. So, so the nominations came out, and there have been some controversies. Probably the most notable one are some <laughs> some omissions from Barbie and calls of uh, misogyny about that. To which I would reply, I think Barbie probably deserved, like Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie probably did deserve some more Oscar love, but when movies make that kind of money, often the Oscars overlook them. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that once it's a, such a huge hit, the Oscars don't necessarily pay it its due, but at the same time, we shouldn't take anything away from the really good, 
you know, work that was recognized by the Academy. Just because some, some people didn't get the nominations doesn't mean the other people who did from that same project weren't deserving. And I would also, people who are calling out misogyny, I would like to point out that Justine Triet uh, was nominated for Best Directing for Anatomy of a Fall. And also, Lily Gladstone, I don't want us to uh, paper over Lily Gladstone's nomination, which is historic. First time in history, a Native American woman has been nominated for Best Actress. And she's great in the movie. And with all that being said, uh, let's go over the Best Cinematography nominees, starting with a movie that I had never even heard of before it was nominated for Best Cinematography. And that's El Conde, which is on Netflix right now and looks really fascinating, shot by Edward Lockman. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, unsurprising uh, to be on this list, uh, shot by Rodrigo Prieto. Just amazing work, beautiful work for Martin Scorsese, one of the best directors to ever do it. Uh, Maddie Lee Batique for Maestro with uh, for director Bradley Cooper. Again, no surprise there. Maddie is one of the best, like one of the absolute best. And I think yeah. he might be tied for most on our show of, of all people we've, we've had him on I he's think, been on four a few times, times. yeah no, he's been great um yeah yeah I, I love him and then Hoytevon Hoytema for Oppenheimer I mean like how can you even argue with that 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 movie they they created new film stocks just for that movie um <laughs> yeah they, just, they, they did some more amazing stuff for sure and then and then Robbie Ryan who, we, who we've already had on the show for Poor Things which you know Poor Things is one of the most uh, unique movies of the year and I, I love it. I personally love it I, th- I thought it was amazing I, I did as well and yeah he was just on like a week or two ago so yeah yeah, it's, uh, yeah you, if you ha- didn't listen to Robbie Ryan on the podcast go back a couple weeks and, oh, and God, find go him back and, and listen, listen to Robbie yeah. Robbie yeah. is just a, a wonderful fun he makes you want to go make movies just talking to him because he's just so full of uh, joie de vivre about the whole the whole endeavor. I also would like to note that even uh, that uh, there are no women nominated this year. And I think that's kind of a bummer. You know, last year I thought a woman was going to win. I, I, I really did. I was very, very surprised that it didn't work out. Um, uh, well, speaking of any other surprises, did you have any other surprises in the nominations? Anything else that you uh, El Conde was, 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 was the big surprise. And I was wondering if Rodrigo Prado, who shot both Killers of the Flower Moon and Barbie, was going to cancel himself out. And I do wonder, to a degree, if somebody else had shot Barbie, if that would have also been nominated. Because I, I think you can't overstate how great that movie looks. God damn, that movie looks awesome. I mean, the thing about the, about the Academy Awards is it's part Lifetime Achievement Award. And I mean, literally everyone on this list is pretty due, in my opinion. And they're all multiple nominees. They're all multiple Oscar nominees. I know that Robbie Ryan was nominated a couple of times. Uh, you know, Maddie Libatique's been nominated. It's like Maddie was so, nominated twice for Black yeah. Swan and A Star is Born. So this is the third time for him. Uh, every one of these cinematographers is due. It, it, to me, cinematography is a real horse race on this one. You know, like I have my own personal uh, preferences and things that I like in a movie or whatever. And I know we say this every year when we get to this point, uh, not one of these people winning would be a disappointment. All of them are great. I do need to go sit down and watch El Conde. That wasn't a movie that I, I don't think I got a screener for it. Like, I don't I didn't feel the presence of an Oscar campaign. So it was kind of surprising to me that it was nominated. But there's usually one like that. And last year, the one that was like that, All Quiet on the Western Front, that one, I was shocked. Shocked. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I thought I thought Mandy had that one locked up. Yeah, it's it, you know, there's always some surprises. It, it's yeah. very interesting the the academy and the academy makeup. It is becoming more diverse. It is becoming younger by aggregate, but it's still you know uh, sort of an older, more conservative crowd. You, you never know. You don't know what, who's going to vote for what or how it's going to turn out. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, we will hopefully have our old friend Janelle Riley on to talk Oscars uh, shortly before the Oscars, which are coming up fast. We're about a month and uh, a month or so away from the Oscars. So, yeah, a month uh, and change, absolutely. So hopefully, we'll have uh, Janelle on here to to have a a, a chin wag, a good old fashioned <laughs> chin wag about about the Oscars. But uh, yeah, looking very forward to it. And uh, I I will say this: I feel like this last year was kind of a standout year and and i think we'll look back at 2023 as 
a year where like the needle got moved in many directions. And even uh, for people who are still uh, upset that Greta Gerwig, who I believe deservedly should have been nominated for best director, she's going to be just fine. And the same with Margot Robbie. It's hard to argue that they both didn't deserve it. But, you know, again, a lot of times the movie that just makes the most money. I mean, there are obvious exceptions like Titanic, but a lot of times the movie that's the biggest cash cow ends up getting overlooked for the Oscars. And I I do think it's kind of interesting when you see the movies that are nominated, like it's it is making us look at some movies that are like a little bit less in our face. We didn't we haven't been hearing about them. And maybe that's a good thing, you know, to raise the the presence of some other worthy films. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's get to the interview with Christina Dunlap. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Christina Dunlap. Hey, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, you are the cinematographer behind the new movie, American Fiction. It is such a great movie. I love this movie so much. It was such a delight to to watch. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So, all right. Uh, I feel like there's a, a lot to chat about, and I kind of just want to rush headlong into all kinds of different things. But let's start off way, way back. What did you think when you read the script for the first time? When I got the script, I was just blown away. It was actually, it didn't come through the normal channels. It was actually someone working for Cord Jefferson, our director. Uh, I had met her, her name's Hannah, on a music video Mm. a few years before. She was working for another director. And when he said he was looking for, when Cord said he was looking for a DP for this, she threw my name in the mix and she sent me the script and she kind of had emailed me out of the blue and, and said, you know, I'm working for this writer and he has this script and I'd love to send it to you. And I didn't know what to expect. And I mean, 10 pages and I already felt like it was one of the best screenplays I'd ever read. So I read the script and then I immediately went and read Erasure by Percival Ebert that it's adapted from. Yeah, I was lucky enough to that she set up a lunch for us. Well, you definitely owe Hannah like a hug or a bottle of champagne or something because it, oh, certainly, it certainly worked out. <laughs> that's that's great. Okay. So uh, I'm a huge fan of Cord's writing. I loved Watchmen. Uh, I also loved The Good Place. I think I've, I've seen everything that he's written that's been produced for television or for now movies. First time director. I, I know first time directors, uh, there is a lot to learn. There's a lot to process. Not to say that he hasn't been steeped and around this for a long time, but Did that give you some trepidation? Were you concerned at all about working with someone who never sat in that chair before? I mean, I think there's always a concern every time you work with a a new director, just learning their style and how they work. But the second I sat down with Ford, I could tell immediately that that he was going to be a wonderful person to work with because he is just very joyous and positive and extremely collaborative and open to ideas. And so when when we started talking about the script, it was really more excitement. And, you know, he was very honest. He said, I've never even directed traffic before. So (laughs) you're going to have to maybe hold my hand through some things or answer questions. And I was completely willing to do that because the script was incredible. And I just, it's a story that's so personal to him. And I think that that's what counts is that, you know, the story you're telling, you're an open collaborator and you, you love what you do. And I could tell that that he was all of those things. Well, that's great. You know, uh, I worked way, way back as a, as an AC and a DP with a, a lot of first timers. And I can say with a little bit of authority that quite often, it seemed to me that first time directors would lean on uh, DPs who had been around the block a couple of times to really, I'm not going to say help them direct the movie, but first for all sorts of consultations, it almost feels like a team effort. There's so much, there's so many conversations. You almost become like attached at the hip or something because there's almost always a conversation and sort of like a a, a checks and balances are like, I'm kind of thinking about this. What do you think about this? Can we, can we, should we talk about this? Anything that seems like it has to do with camera or movement and sometimes blocking and, and things like that there, it's a really, really collaborative. Did it feel like this with court as well too? Were you, were you guys really like on the same page and consulting like constantly back and forth about everything? Oh yeah, absolutely. And we were lucky to have a lot of prep time 
we had eight weeks in Boston, which is very rare because we only had 25 or 26 shoot days. So (laughs) we had more prep, which was really helpful. And I think a a very smart move, but we discussed every beat of every scene. And I, I really like to go through a script and break it down like psychologically about what each character is going through and how you visually transcribe that. So he was very into my process and, and we had a lot of meetings beforehand. So by the time we got to set, we were very much on the same page and, and he did trust and give me the room to do my work, which is so nice. All right. So uh, you had eight weeks of prep. Let's drill down a little bit more into this here. Tell me a little about that prep process, because it can be completely different for every production. Scouting, storyboards, shot lists, blocking, story beats, uh, important moments. How did your prep process go for this? We had so many locations in this film that I would say the majority of it was spent location scouting. Mm. But toward the producers and the production designer and myself all rode around in a minivan together (laughs) going from location to location so we could discuss everything along the way. And blocking is obviously such a a crucial part of the film. And while a lot of it happens when the actors come to set and they have ideas and they, it can change up. I wanted to make sure we had a really concrete plan. So Cord never felt like things were getting out of control. We didn't know what coverage because we had such a short amount of time to shoot. And oftentimes there was six, seven people in a scene and we didn't have the kind of schedule where we could cover each person and just know we had our basis. So we planned a lot of steady cam moves that sort of flowed through the characters and were on certain people in certain moments. So once we were location scouting, I would kind of see, well, our shot's going to work in this space. And I would use Artemis and I would have our lovely AD and whoever else was willing stand in and sort of make storyboards just through photography in the spaces that we were going to use and and see what was going to work. And and what was so helpful about that is a lot of the time I was shooting them in, you know, 185 and I just was feeling so wide and I started exploring going to 235 because we, these locations were practical. We were seeing the ceilings everywhere and I was just I wanted to be tighter in because it's such an emotional story while it is a comedy. So I wanted to be tighter in on people's faces while having that room laterally to play with blocking and composition. So Cord and I, any scene that was complicated or had, you know, a lot of people, we would sort of storyboard it through using Artemis and and stand-ins. Let's give a quick shout out to Artemis for the people who don't know. (laughs) Artemis is a uh, awesome app that you can get on a, a phone, on an iPad, that it records your focal length, it gives you all kinds of great note information. Now, this is not a commercial for Artemis. We'll get back on, on, on track, but I just got to say that, you know, I, th- I, I thought that, I, th- I think it's awesome. And I'm, uh, I'm glad that that was able to aid in your process and keep all your stuff organized and help figure it out. Uh, okay, so eight Absolutely. weeks Absolutely. Of- I think most of all, I was just intimidated by our incredible cast yeah. And, oh, yeah. and the pace at which we had to move. But, you know, I had an incredible crew that was mostly local to Boston, but... <laughs> the the hardest part was the schedule. I was just worried about making our days, which we did, but it was it was a challenge. All right, as long as we're talking about challenges, was there a a, a particular day or shot or sequence that you're just amazed that like uh, it turned out the way it did? That you know you you did you did a, you had a plan, maybe you had to throw it out the window. Was there anything in particular like, oh, this one scene was, you know, it was your your battle, your hill to get through. And of course, the movie works tremendous. But I always think that later, you know, upon reflection about stuff that either I did or I talked to people, it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe that that the bailing wire and (laughs) chewing gum held together and we were able to make it happen. Did you have anything like that on on this show? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's hard to even choose. I was joking with our our producer, Nico, so someone, you know, asked if there was a particularly hard day. And he was like, I think every day was a particularly, I can't name an easy day, but I think day 26 of 26. <laughs> yeah. Not even yeah, that day. Yeah, we shot yeah. off like 10 pages. The, wow. 
The beach house was a particularly challenging location because when we were scouting, I don't know, reading the script, I I sort of imagined, you know, beach house, it's going to be like light and airy. And we walked into this location and there was very dark wood and throughout the entire house. And the ceilings were extremely low. It was very creaky. It was small. And I was like, oh, we can't. We can't shoot here. And everyone fell in love with it. They're like, this is perfect, you know, because there had been a tragedy that had occurred in the house and it was supposed to be a bit run down and falling apart and not something they could sell and make a lot of money from. And we hadn't quite found the right location. The production designer fell in love with it. Everyone fell in love with it. And I knew that we wanted to see the ocean through the windows. Oh, yeah. And we were going to have to expose for everybody inside the house. And we just didn't have the budget to have, you know, several condors out pumping in light. So I didn't know how we were going to do it. So the fact that my G&E team was able to pull pretty much every light off the truck every day and march it down the beach and switch between which window we were pumping in light through because it was a practical location, you know, that. I'm I'm pretty amazed at how that turned out. And then the scene with Leslie Uggams um, when she's lost on the beach. Oh, yeah. We had extreme winds that day. So it was one of the days we were able to bring in a condor. And I had one around the peninsula of the actual town shooting back to represent. Because there was a lighthouse down there, but we couldn't turn it on. So we had to make mm. our own lighthouse light. And then we had the the light you know our moonlight that was above her on a 80 foot articulator and the winds were too high so we kept having to retract 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 and our space was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and I just it it was a crazy night you know and Leslie is a legend she's in her 80s in a nightgown waiting in the ocean so we were trying to get it done as quickly as possible and it was just there was such a wild energy from the wind and the chaos of trying to get that that i feel like you can really feel it in the scene which aided in the long run but it was a tough shoot for sure so well i'm glad you bring up uh, you bring up lighting because uh i'm gonna slather a little praise on you here i really 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 enjoyed the lighting of american fiction and it's a comedy or a dramedy but but i would say ostensibly a comedy really and Comedy is typically high key and you've got some some wonderful high key scenes in this high key lighting. But I want to say that your high key lighting, it feels so subtle and natural. It's not the over the top high key lighting. that I think a lot of people associate potentially with like television comedy or, or really broad comedy. And you have all these little like kisses and hits of highlights here and there. I don't know what your process is for this, and I'm not going to ask you to reveal your process on on the show, but I love it. In fact, I I love it in sort of the same ways that I really enjoyed, you know, an entirely different movie, but a similar sort of low-key lighting and similar sort of things with like little cuts of uh, shadows and and little dips as in tar. I don't know if you saw tar, but like there's, there's totally different movies, totally different color palettes, totally different tones. But there is this subtlety in your highlights and the hu- subtleties and like those shadows, which I so enjoy. And I, I see it's rare. It's rare to have all, all of those wonderful subtleties. So the work that you're doing with lighting is not drawing so much attention to itself, but yet it completely fits the, the scene and the composition and what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about the high key scenes in particular and, and what you're doing there? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, Tar is a stunning film, so that's. Very kind. I mean, we we had to pull out a lot of tricks on this one because, like I said, we we didn't have rigging days a lot, oftentimes, and sometimes we were in very challenging locations, like the scene with Sterling at the pool, mm. and then when they go to play bocce ball, we were in a someone's yard that was surrounded by other yards. There was no street nearby so there was no way we could pull up a condor or get light in and my gaffer came up with the solution of having his friend who's an arborist actually climb up you know 40 50 feet into these huge trees that were in the yard and hang gem balls so we had sort of uh like 180 moonlight from gem balls they had hung in different trees and then there was yeah a lot of 
a bounce. And I like to build off the practical sources in a space. And with Jeffrey, it was tough because frontal lighting was just his glasses. Reflective. What's it called? Yeah, they're reflective. But they weren't, you know, they were supposed to be the glasses that don't have the reflection. Oh, yeah, they yeah, had yeah. the UV protection, but it was just not <laughs> working the way it should. So lighting him frontally was different. We had to go, you know, with a lot of toppy light, which isn't always my first choice. And then so we were really trying to fill in him with something very soft and large and far away that that he wasn't going to accidentally turn into. And um, I do love to use a polarizer mm. for skin tone. And you can sort of whatever light I am trying to use as a highlighter to kiss like the reflection of the skin, I can dial in where it lands on the person's face. So, Gotcha. Are, are you one of the people who will also use a polarizer inside to get rid of the reflections? Are you uh, some people I know that they, they never want to use them inside, but I, I don't know. I, th I think that there's some value there. I do use it inside a lot. Yeah. Often just, just to control where the highlight is on, on someone's face. If I'm using particularly like reflective sources. Nice. There, there's some wonderful moments where the perspective of the movie shifts ever so subtly. It feels super grounded in the reality that we have, but it's stuff that's going inside of uh, Jeffrey Wright's head. It's like the, these are moments that are only he is experiencing that nobody else is part of. It feels so authentic and real to the rest of the movie that for a second, it makes people go like, what? What's happening here? Or Because it, <laughs> it, it, it feels different. What was the discussion like between you and Cord to figure out how that shift was going to happen? Because those moments blend so seamlessly with everything else. They don't feel abrupt and they're for comedic effect in some on some levels but also dramatic tension. What was that process of deciding how, how big or how small or how, how, to, how to make those scenes happen? <laughs> it's funny you should ask that. It, it, that scene has a very funny story. And um, I would say it was a, definitely a moment where you have to lean in to the constraints that are in front of you. And originally, we had planned to, because the end of the film sort of takes this meta turn and, and there's a little surrealism, we didn't want it to come out of nowhere. So this particular scene, I think without giving away too much, our main character Monk sits down to write a, a novel and the characters sort of appear in the room. And there is a point at which I wanted all of the lights to dim down and a spotlight to come up on one of the characters. Mm. And this character played by Oak showed up to set with an eye patch because he had scratched his cornea. And oh, so, I just thought that was part of his character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> we it, it works perfectly, but the eye patch was actually of medical necessity. Oh, wow. So... He, and, and I learned that day that the absolute worst thing you can do to someone with a scratch cornea is change the light or put a bright light on them because their pupil is dilating. It's extremely painful. And, you know, I, I can't believe he, he made it through the day because he was in a lot of pain and the performance he gave is just incredible. That's, no, it's riveting. That scene is, that, that scene's incredible. No, I, yeah. I love it. So between takes, he would have to go sit in a room with all the lights off and let his eye readjust and so we had to really cut down on the coverage because we knew we didn't want to torture him and i couldn't i had to bring the lights down in the room as much as possible and you know and instead of panicking cord was like all right so it, we're just we're gonna find a different way to make it feel surreal so i think i added a smoke filter to give it a sort of like hazy you're in a bar feel and we we really brought down all the lights and it just became this sort of bubble that feels like not a part of the rest of the movie but could fit into the rest of the movie then i think it works so much better than had we gone with this big dramatic light shift because my entire intent behind the visuals of this film was to relate 
to monk and fall into the story and not to be pulled out and reminded that you're watching a movie because there's so much going on emotionally. And I think it's important that even though Muck is a prickly guy that you relate to him and are rooting for him in some way. So I think this scene we were forced to keep it pretty grounded because of, of a strange reason, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. And I feel like because we just leaned into it and pivoted and found a way to make it feel surreal, that was different from our original intention. It, it actually ended up working better in the long run, I think. Have you gone to see this movie with an audience yet? Have you experienced it with a crowd of people? What's that, what's that been like? Uh, yeah, the first time I saw it was at the Austin Film Festival, and they always have such an incredible audience. So uh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I feel like I'd only seen it in screening rooms with, you know, 15 or less people. And it, it takes a while for people to know that it's okay to laugh. I think that first scene is particularly like people like, oh, I don't know if I can laugh at this or not. And then as the film ramps up, they realize it's okay to laugh. But some of these film festivals, I think people knew about the movie and, and that it was funny and people were laughing from the get-go, which was really fun to see. It was really fun to see what people react to and what resonates and and something that someone said to me after that that meant a lot to me was they said they'd never seen a, a camera move joke. And <laughs> I fought really hard for a particular drone shot at the end of the film. So when that came up and people laughed it just it really <laughs> it was really fun for me to see that that had worked because you know we didn't have it in the budget to have that drone and i just felt like it was the button that we needed and and it it played so that was really cool to see all right so it sounds like you had an incredible experience working with cord are you guys already talking about a future collaboration do you already have like plans in the works for for your next thing what, what what's what's next for you yeah, I mean, he is just, I think everyone is really excited about him. And and while we've been doing the the press for the film, you know, he's been so busy and we've stayed in contact. He's extremely gracious and is really inclusive of his crew, which doesn't always happen. And we've stayed really tight. You know, the editor and the composer and myself have been going to a lot of things together and doing Q&As with Cord. And I think we all just cannot wait to work together again. He he says he's writing more things. He's been sharing ideas with me. And I hope it, it's able to happen soon. We'll see what happens with this film. But the entire team from this, from the producers to the, you know, DIT, we all just really had an incredible time together and would love to do it again. That that's great. It's so it's so wonderful when you have a cohesive team, and if you can, you know, get the band back together, so to speak, to to make it happen again. That that's fantastic. Well, yeah, uh, it's I, really rare too that I get to spend a lot of time. You know, I'll come in to see some of the cuts and and you know meet the editor or you know the composer. I never get to meet the composer, so to be on this trajectory with them and get to spend a lot of time with them and hear about their process and how certain things in the film came to be, it's been such an incredible experience. I really enjoyed it. All right, so how did you get started in this whole business? How? When did you get the bug? When did you first realize that being a DP was was something you could do? <laughs> well, I I found a camera, uh, just a stills film camera, in my garage when I was a teen, and I fell in love with it. And I I was lucky to have a dark room at my high school, so I was always shooting on film and printing in the 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 light meter on my camera was broken so oh. i had to learn to just sort of how to expose and what light looked like and without having a meter so it really taught me to have an eye for that and i just i fell in love with photography and i was at a friend's house in in at venice beach i was with a friend at venice beach and her cousin had a friend that was a director and he had said he was going to shoot a music video. And I said, Oh, well, I'm a photographer. And I don't think they had any idea that I was in high school. <laughs> and they said, Oh, well, you know, you could come take photos for us. And 
to them, they were getting free photos. And to me, it was like the opportunity of a lifetime. And I, I didn't know what to expect, but I showed up and it was a music video for Death Cab for Cutie, which oh, is, wow. <laughs> you know, was a huge band at the time. I was oh, like, wow. oh, this is a real job. And I shot the whole thing on slide film because that's what we shot in, in class. So then they could critique them. And I delivered it to the label name. Like, what is this? Why are you getting us slides? And so I had to make up this thing about how slides were cool and they were positives, not negatives. And their color was richer. And I just sort of- All of that is true. That's not making (laughs) it up. All of that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I, you know, I gave them my reasons why they weren't getting negatives. And um, I ended up meeting a lot of people on this set and I didn't know what a cinematographer was. I mean, I grew up in LA and I'm sure it had been around it or knew that it existed, but I never knew that it was a job you could do to me being in the film industry. You know, you had to be an actor. That was, that was the only way you could get paid to make movies. I didn't really understand the behind the scenes aspects of it coming up when I was little and, you know, my parents aren't, in the industry or anything but i definitely had friends whose parents where i just didn't you know when you're that little you don't understand that they're doing it for money (laughs) so i saw what a dp was on that set and it was actually ross rigi who's a lovely dp but you know i his had this bigger camera and all these lenses and he was on a dolly and i just i fell in love with it immediately it was like stills but with all of these other components to it. And I knew in that moment that was what I wanted to do. But at the time, there were very few female DPs. And I had to sort of take this weird zigzagging trajectory to get here today. But I met some amazing producers on that set. And, um, you know, they invited me back to take stills on some other shoots. And I think one day on the way to set, they asked me to pick up cigarettes for the director. And I had to tell them that I wasn't old enough to buy cigarettes. So they they sort of looked into it and they were like, oh, you know, you can come back as a PA when you turn 18. And so once I turned 18, they, they let me and I was PAing on set and they still let me do behind the scenes. I would make little making of videos and I met a lot of gaffers and grips and I would just sort of ask everyone questions about what they were doing and why they were using that light. And I would make sketches of the different lighting plots for different commercials or music videos or whatever we were on. And, and I just fell into that world and I started working at at 18 and I ended up doing two years at community college and um, I only went to school two days a week and then I worked the rest of the time but my goal was to transfer into film school and I did eventually transfer to USC and I did two years there well yeah you you make it sound so so blase like oh just USC like I just transferred to USC so you talk about the twists and turns you probably discovered really quickly though when you went to film school that film school isn't exactly like the real world of being on sets and you'd already had all this experience that a lot of people who go to film school have they don't have they don't have any idea what the real world of production is like when you're showing up and you've got all this experience and now you've got these classmates uh, are you ever kind of like, but that's not how it goes. That's not how it works. What, what What's going What's going through your mind? Like, did you feel like film school was really preparing you for the, the world? Or was it also, was it more of like taking you a, a step back? Or could you take what you needed from it? Tell, tell me about your film school experience, I guess is really what my question is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I was a transfer year. A lot of the students in my particular class were from all different ages and backgrounds because they were also transferring it. So some people had worked in the industry and, 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 you know, like you had a film partner that the school assigned you. And I was assigned to this wonderful person, Leo Cunningham. He is a veteran and he was a Marine. And so he was coming in, you know, from that background. And I think they were like, Oh, here's this, like girl from LA and we're going to pair her with this Marine from Philly and they're going to, you know, they wanted to pair you with someone opposite. And we just, you know, hit it off immediately. I had a wonderful time making projects with him. So there's people from all different backgrounds. So I met a lot of really interesting people and I, I made some connections and 
I had a wonderful, a wonderful experience learning film theory and just, you know, getting to watch movies and in a class was that was a lot of fun. But in terms of the practical, technical aspects of it, I feel like I had friends at AFI that that definitely came out with more hands-on experience. But because I had been working, I I just went right back to to working. <laughs> there's some real benefits, of course, to getting a, a film school education. I, I know that there's uh you know there's some pushback, I think, from a, a younger generation that that's coming up now who thinks that they can just watch YouTube and that they'll go to YouTube University and that they'll they'll learn everything that they need to learn. And everyone I know who went to film school, I think would wholeheartedly disagree with that just because there's so much life experience and connections and networking and things that go on when you're in the trenches with other people that's not the same as like, oh, hey, let's let's look at a lighting diagram and see see what what this is uh, virtually. You get some information, but it's not necessarily all the same information. It, I don't think the experience is the same, but you know, it's it's a circuitous route to get to, uh, you know, from PA and still photo to you know going to film school and then to getting onto set as a DP. Did you also work your way up in the camera department, or did you come out of film school and say I'm a DP? How how did how did that happen? I wish <laughs> I I kept in contact with the people I'd been working with before, and uh, there was one producer. Melissa Larson, who I was kind of her assistant, and then I was a coordinator, and then I was a production manager. So I was putting in the orders for all these commercials and seeing people's orders come in, and and I wanted to be a DP more than anything. And you know, maybe we we're on a commercial and we had a backup body, and it was looking like we weren't going to make the day. She would be like, "Let's get another AC. You can take my coordinator." She's done with her office job and she's gonna shoot you know second camera or she'll get the b-roll so we can make our day and she would let me get that hands-on experience or you know she would let me shoot behind the scenes making of for production companies that maybe wanted that and i would camera pa whenever possible Mm -hmm. and i i seconded but i didn't get to go up through the whole camera department. I sort of got all of the information that I could absorb. And it, it was a good place to do that, honestly. While it wasn't what I necessarily wanted to be doing, I did have a overall macro view of, of everything and how a set works. And then I met some directors and, you know, they would have a $5,000 music video that their DP that was doing the commercial didn't want to do. And they would let me come shoot it for them. So I, I met people that way and I just built a reel and I would operate and eventually had enough of a body of work to try and start getting hired. That is a, a, a really scrappy, grindy way to make it happen. So no, no, that's great. It's like you got to learn a whole bunch of different things and kind of, uh, you know, grind it out on, on the opportunities that were there. That, that's super cool. I'm going to, I was going to ask, you know, where can people find you and track you down if they want to? But I actually know the question to that because I saw, uh, just last night, I went to your website and you have one of the most dramatic, like hire me sort of messages on, on your website I, I had I have ever seen. And I have to say that I thought that that was uh, very bold. And, and tell tell all of our listeners and viewers where they can find you if they want to reach out to you. Um, yeah, I mean, on my website, I have my contact information there for my agents or on Instagram. It's just my name. <laughs> so uh, ChristinaDunlop.com. And uh, there's not an H in Christina for those of you out there who might be thinking that there that there is, but there's not. So, um, <laughs> Thank uh, you so much. Yeah, it's just CR. <laughs> well, uh, it's been such a delight having you on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I, I really hope you'll come back and, and talk again next time. Uh, next time you've got something you want to chat about. It was, I, I've really enjoyed it. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I love the show. All right. So that was Christina Dunlap. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. It was such a great conversation and uh, I can't wait to have you on again. All right. So Ilya, I, I believe it's it's time for uh, some paying of bills. If I'm paying not bills. Yes, we have to thank our fine sponsor, Aperture. Aperture maker of all kinds of cool cinema lights. But I want to shine a light 
Oh, pun, I see what you oh, did. I know, all pun intended. On one of Aperture's more humble offerings, it is called the Accent B7C. And it is a little light bulb that's got Bluetooth built into it so you can control it by your phone. And it screws into a standard household Edison base and you get all kinds of RGB plus white color effects. And uh, you can do all kinds of cool stuff. In the olden days of cinema, when someone had a practical light, like a lamp or something like that, you'd have to go get an expensive photo bulb that was already rated to a standard typical temperature of like, 3,200 degrees, which is sort of a warm white, or a 5,000 or 5,600 degree bulb. And they only lasted for a short period of time, and it was kind of a lot of money, and these were incandescent bulbs. You can buy this Aperture B7C light, and it's going to run for like 50,000 hours. You're not gonna, it's not gonna burn out anytime soon. And they actually sell this B7C both individually and as a kit of like eight with a charging case. And it's really clever. I know a couple people, certainly people who kind of work in uh, production and the art department and in camera department who love to swap out bulbs, who love to like, you know, have the ability to create a accurate color temperature wherever a practical light source might be. And there's some people out there who are using these bulbs because they're really high quality light actually as relatively soft ambient lighting solutions for their homes, for, you know, they're battery powered too, so you don't even have to have the light plugged in. You can put it in, it's charged, it'll run for hours, depending on what the brightness is. Anyway, it's a very cool light. We'll put a link. Uh, Hot Red cameras, of course, always keeps them in stock. We have them on display. Aperture Accent B7C, available individually and as the 8 light kit. Uh, check it out at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. You won't be disappointed. Really cool light, really cool thing. Now, short ends. Uh, but Ben, now that we are done paying the bills, it is our short ends. It is time for our obsession of the week. What are you about this week? What's going on with you? Mine's kind of a, a double beat here. So mm. uh, I'm watching the new season of True Detective and loving it. Loving it. Totally my favorite season of True Detective so far. Uh, it's great to see Jodie Foster back on screen. She's so good. The whole cast is great. And it was the season was created by and partly directed by a woman named Isa Lopez, who directed one of my favorite horror movies from the last five, six years. It's called Tigers Are Not Afraid. I would say it's almost more like a dark fantasy movie than a horror movie. Mm. Um, I, I want to say Guillermo del Toro executive produced it. It's a very Guillermo del Toro-ish story about a girl who ends up having like three wishes and they all come out horrible. <laughs> um, and, and, and she's like living in like, a, you know, a drug war torn part of the world. And it's it's so good. It's such a great thing. But anyway, um, True Detective is awesome. But it got me thinking about a show that came out in, I want to say it was 2017. I can easily find this out because it's on the internet and I'm staring at it right now. It's called Fortitude and it came out in 2015 and it ran for three seasons. I haven't seen the third season. I don't think it was released in America. It is a lot, if you like True Detective Season 4, and you should because it's great, consider checking out Fortitude if you like that kind of thing. It is a show that is also set at the North Pole, basically, mm -hmm. in a small town, uh, and it starts off almost like a police procedural, and by the end of Season 1, it is a full-on horror movie, and it's got, or a, a horror TV series. And it's got an amazing cast, like Stanley Tucci is in it, Michael Gambone is in it, Dennis Quaid is in it. It's really good and edge of your seat kind of stuff. I especially loved the first season of it. There's a bunch of DPs, so I'm not going to list them all. Definitely worth checking out. And it's a show that I think was made for the BBC and didn't get as much play here in America, uh, but totally deserved it. And I have never convinced anyone to watch this show who didn't end up loving it. So check out Fortitude. I streamed it on Amazon. I don't, uh, that was years ago. I don't know if it's still streaming on Amazon. It's worth it to get it however you can get it into your eyeballs. It's a great show. And, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised you like True Detective season four. I think this is probably the most Ben season of True Detective yet so far. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like I liked what I saw of the first season. I was just very busy and it was one of those things that's like, I'll come back to it. Then I've tried watching all the other seasons and it's nothing against any of them. I think they're all really well made, but they didn't just pull me in. And I think having Jodie Foster as a cop 
investigating something, I, I, I am there no matter what happens. Like, <laughs> yes, like some echoes of Silence of the Lambs for you. Yeah. yeah it, the True Detective season four also is layered with references to the thing, the John Carpenter movie that, you know, is probably in my top five, including there. This has to be intentional. There are two characters who have the same character names as characters from the thing. There's uh, a Blair and a Clark. And I'm mm. like, Hmm, that seems hmm. Ki- kind of <laughs> kind of uh, conspicuous to me in a good way. But but also like I I just love this uh, writer director like her work her work is just phenomenal. This is always my hope with a TV show like it sets up such a delicious mystery that as I'm sitting there being like how could I pay it off? I don't have an answer for that. So I hope they have an answer for that. And sometimes in the world that we're living in of peak cable peak TV. Sometimes they don't have that answer, and it's disappointing. But I'm like crossing my fingers the True Detective sticks the landing because because it's so good so far. Agreed. Really like it, uh, Ilio. So, what is your pet obsession of the week? Really, my short end is sort of talking a little bit about technology that is coming to the mainstream once again, which is great. And it's interesting because the the people who are bringing it to the mainstream, in some ways, are the people who basically convinced the world that it was unnecessary. And my short end this week has to do with the camera company, Red. Red, who of course makes all kinds of various high-end and moderate level now cinema cameras and, and have been very popular for a number of years. They've brought back the global shutter. Now, they're not the only company to, to do this. Uh, Sony's got a global shutter coming out in a $6,000 camera called the A9 Mark III, and that's about to start shipping in a couple of weeks. Uh, Hot Ride Cameras was lucky enough to get a, a an early version of that camera, and we got to, to play with it a bit, and I'm going to post some stuff coming up soon about what is interesting and what works and doesn't about that camera. But between the time that I got that camera and tested it, and now, Red has announced two new cameras that have global shutters, their highest end version of their cinema line, uh, the V-Raptor. And, well, and, and, v- and yeah. for our listeners and viewers, please explain what is the difference. I'm getting there. I just wanted to say what they were. So there's new cameras coming out, the V-Raptor, the V-Raptor XL. These are already existing products, but they're now being re-released with a global shutter sensor. And for people who have uh, already purchased them, they're going to do a an upgrade program. But here's the interesting thing. The way cameras typically work these days, and it didn't used to be this way prior to like, let's say 2008. Before 2008, almost every camera made for cinema had a global shutter, which means that every single pixel, every single line of information on your imaging sensor was captured at the same moment in time. And when it was captured, uh, all of that information went into the camera and you had a complete solid frame. Rolling shutter was different. Rolling shutter was going sequentially line by line by line by line by line by line. Very, very fast, but still very fast. Exactly. But if you were to suddenly pan your camera to the left or the right, you might see things sort of like warp or what was known as the jello effect. A lot of people have seen this certainly on their cell phones, too. It's like, you know, it's a um, or if you've taken a a flash photo with a camera anytime recently and you just get this one little stripe of light instead of. I was about to say, like, that was something that it was always a giveaway for a rolling shutter is if if like it was a shot of like people taking flash photos the the flash would like start halfway at the halfway part and go down the frame or something like it would start in a weird arbitrary place and i think as viewers like we don't actually care like that deeply but it was noticeable but like i i've even been known to like while i'm watching tv be like whoa that's that one super jello cam right there and back it up and watch it again because like rolling shutter even though like post stuff like uh there's a rolling shutter repair thing in adobe premiere like people have tried to address it and it was my understanding that basically what happened is we still have rolling shutter on most of these cameras it's just rolling so fast that you get almost very very Yes, very, you're exactly correct. Rolling shutter has improved a lot from the days of the original first RED camera. The first RED camera was the first mainstream cinema camera that had a rolling shutter, and there was a lot of uh, chatter and talking and, and you know uh, ink spilled all about what this meant and how you try to create 
post solutions or yeah. in-camera solutions to avoid it, including especially like if you ever shot like a, an airplane like or a, oh, a ceiling yeah. fan Pro- or anything like that, you might see propellers looking all, looking all kinds of weird. Global Shutter solves that. And kudos to Red for coming out with this technology now basically saying hey we're we've got a six thousand dollar camera with a global shutter we got ten thousand dollar with a global shutter they're about to have a thirty and a fifty thousand dollar camera Didn't with global black shutters. magic in one of black magic's early production cameras the ones that were shaped like a weird trapezoidal brick didn't either the first or the second one have a global shutter did i just stump God. you i can't believe that i just stumped you with anything it's like throwing a physics equation at Stephen Hawking and stumping him. He's <laughs> saying some kind of camera ephemera that you didn't that you didn't immediately go like, "No, idiot." You know what? Yes, you're right. The <gasps> you're, you're you're right. The 4K production camera, which was their first 4K camera, the second yeah. one went, that was in that that bizarre sort of trapezoidal that, shape. Yeah, uh, that shape that was, was designed to torture your hand into dropping the camera while you were shooting. I have one of those in my garage right now, actually. But I got to say that it's what's it's funny about that is it's good. But they're actually their previous camera, which was even better. So their previous camera, their 2.5K yeah. camera, actually had more dynamic range. That they uh, And that was sort of the, the limitation with a lot of CMOS sensors and a global shutter is that there would be a trade-off with your yeah. uh, with your dynamic range, you mean your brightest your brightest bright and your darkest dark, but interesting from testing the Sony Alpha A nine three recently, they've somehow solved the issues with dynamic range at least on uh, that Sony has. And the early feedback that I'm reading from like uh, the Red user groups and stuff like that is that they seem to have solved it at Red too. So. I think this might be a trend. I think nice. there might actually be more cameras coming with global shutters and. It's going to be a way for camera companies to charge more money to get more money out of people. It's going to be a premium feature. Mm. And will that matter? Will people drop down the money to have the global shutter again? Uh, I think they might. I mean, it certainly happened with the Komodo, which is, you know, I would say possibly Red's number one all time best selling camera. A lot of people bought that camera. So. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what we'll see what happens. But I'm pretty bullish on global shutter technology. Way back when, when I worked at Dalsa in 2006, we had a global shutter 4K digital cinema camera, the full frame global shutter camera long before anyone else. But it's amazing now that you can buy this technology. This technology is coming out from Sony and Red, and uh, I think it bodes really well for the future. And we're going to see this technology, I'm sure, filter down into more and more affordable cameras. And it's probably just going to be, again, one of those things that people take for granted and that might end up being this like weird period of time, like between like 2008 and 2024, where there were, you know, rolling shutter artifacts. And now, you know, going forward into the future, maybe that that won't be a thing anymore for at least for cinema and television. Yeah. Well, I I approve of this one for sure, um, because nothing uh, pulls me out of an edit when I'm doing it faster than noticing rolling shutter. Yeah, Jello in, in particular is, is pretty yeah. obnoxious, especially for like car mounts and things like that. It's really like, oh, whoa, yeah, yeah. what just uh, happened? Yeah. Uh, go. Yeah. So that about wraps us up, Ilya. Who should we thank this week? Let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz is uh, figuring out how to juggle all the things in his life and cut our show and make this happen. Thank you, Ben Katz. Thank you for for figuring that out. Uh, we you know we really appreciate it. Ben is the um, best. We're yes. so so lucky to have Ben on this on this project. Let's also thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, who is lining up a bunch of interviews for us, getting things Ooh, uh, yeah. ready. Yeah, we got a, a ton of we, stuff happening. We got some exciting is, ones coming up for sure. I mean, I really enjoyed this uh, conversation with uh, Christina Dunlap. Uh, Alana set that whole thing up, and that that was awesome. We got to thank Kaze Alatrachi. Kaze, uh, you know, who's making music for us. He's making new music for us. He is an editor. He's not an editor. He's sort of an editor. He, he, he kind of does everything. He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a composer. He's a VFX artist. He's a director. What he's can't a, he do? Nothing. He's a quadruple. Yeah. He's a quintuple threat. He does, he does it all. <laughs> anyway, Kays is out there. You can find him at musicbykays.com. Reach out to him and uh, say hello or get him to compose original music for whatever you've got going on. Please do that. Somebody, for God's sakes, hire Kays who listens to the show. All right, so Ben, if someone wants to find you outside of the Cinematography Podcast, where should they do that? 
they should go to the Starbucks in Sherman Oaks and see me <laughs> crying into a latte. Uh, go to benrock.com and uh, find all my social media stuff. You can uh, watch my whole reel and a lot of individual projects and uh, even uh, send me a message. Who cares? So, uh, Ilya, where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I seem to be amassing quite a few people on LinkedIn lately. So, uh, you know, it's not just the completely superfluous, you know, social media network. It <laughs> seems to be uh, working really well for people. You know what? You can also hit me on Instagram. I guess I'll put Instagram. I've had people reach out to me on Instagram recently. So it's how about on Ilya TikTok? Friedman. Are you are you all over the TikTok? No. No, yeah. there's no TikToking. So sorry, that's no, no TikToking and no Snapchatting. I'm I'm too old for those things. I'm afraid. Yeah. Anyway, Ilya, yeah. that's gonna wrap us up. You want to take us out? We still don't have a way to sign off the show. Um, thanks for joining us. There you go. That's All a right. thing. All thanks right. for joining us. Okay, we'll do that <laughs> until right. next week. <laughs> this has been the Cinematography Podcast. Presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.